If you'd open your scriptures to uh, Romans chapter 4, this is where we'll be today. Um, we've talked and been in a series that we've been calling Blank Screen. Uh, we've been calling it saved, and we've talked about the wrath of God, and we've talked about that as his response to sin. We've talked about how God has, has become the just and the justifier in that he has delivered up his son, Jesus Christ, who is the propitiation for our sins. And as Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, he has imputed to us his righteousness so that we might stand just before God. If you're new to church today, you're like, whoa, what did I just walk into? That's a lot of stuff. We had several series. Go, go, to the, go to the website and you can check out and find, find out what all those words mean. They're deep, rich, wonderful words that express the deep, rich grace of God. That this word saved, which we use so very often, but we don't recognize its breadth. We don't recognize the massive thing that it is to say, I am saved. What we're trying to get across through this series is to recognize how good that good news really is. One of the places where we so frequently forget about this good news is in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Notice uh, verses 24, better turn this thing on, 24 and 25 of Romans chapter 4 says this, It will be counted to us who believe in him, that is God, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. This last line here, uh, who is delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification, is what we call a maxim. It's sort of a short proverbial saying that's really easy to remember. You sort of have that double, you raised, or, or delivered up for our trespasses, raised for our justification. And yet what's interesting is that in this phrase here, Paul doesn't really, he hasn't talked about resurrection much, much up to this point. He is focused in on how, how uh, the crucifixion of Jesus and the death of Jesus and the propitiation in his blood, if we want to use the fancy word we learned a few weeks ago, how all of that has brought, brought about justification. This line, he just kind of drops and walks away. And that should clue us in on something. It should clue us in that Paul assumes we already have this well in hand. We already have this well in hand, and so he doesn't have to explain this. He's, he, he, he can just leave it there and, and, and walk away. The other parts that we've talked about, focusing in on the death of Christ, that seems to be what the Roman church was missing, and so he was presenting that. But I want to focus on this today because I think it matters so much, and I think it gets left behind so often. So I know Oakland Drive Christian Church is far better than any church I've ever been to or ever will go to. And so this is, no, this is not saying this is the way we do it, but the way that I learned it growing up in church was that you know, we're really keen on sharing the gospel with other people. It's kind of one of those important things. Jesus seems to mention in a time or two. And so I learned to do, to do this, to say, well, Jesus died on the cross for my sins so that I won't go to hell but will have access to heaven when I die. You heard something like that before, maybe even learned something like that. Not here, of course, but elsewhere. The problem with that, with that nice little rendition is that it's missing something important. What's it missing? Resurrection. Resurrection is completely missing from that. We see, this, we see this really in the songs that we sing, both hymns 
and newer songs both bear the same weight of guilt. If you look through and you track the verses or the stanzas of the choruses and you ask the question, what attention does the cross get versus what attention does the empty tomb get? It is at least, at best, two to one. And we've sort of uh, brought this resurrection piece kind of down and out for various reasons, but I want to sort of bolster it back up. Not so that we then drop the cross down and lift the resurrection up, but that we hold them together. We hold them together in their importance. Jesus says, and John, in fact, we're going to look at a bunch of verses. Yeah, Jesus says, just in case you want to have, I, I didn't realize I had so many verses we were going to talk about until I started typing them out, and I was like, wow, that's a lot. But uh, if you want to start looking those up, I'll flip back here in a second. But Jesus says this concerning himself. He says in John chapter 10, For this reason the Father loves me, that I lay down my life. He was delivered up for our trespasses. Because I lay down my life, that I might take it up again. He was raised for our justification. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord, delivered up for our trespasses. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again, raised for our justification. This is the charge I have received from my Father. I'll put those back up again for you. You remember the story of Lazarus. The story of Lazarus. Jesus is, is uh, Lazarus has died, and Jesus goes and he 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 sees Mary and Martha, and they're they're weeping over over this. And, and Martha actually chastises Jesus a little bit. She says, "You know, if you were here, this wouldn't have happened because we've seen you do all kinds of crazy things. Like you you could have stopped this sickness." And Jesus says, "What I, I, am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet." Shall he live? Do you believe this? See, Jesus lays down his life to take it up again. Resurrection is a part of the culmination. When I was in uh, grade school, I learned, uh, learned how to map a story. Did you guys do that? Where you had the, sort of the rising action, all the events, and then you had the climax of the story at the top, and then you had the falling action. So everybody, anybody do this in school? Yes, no, maybe so? Yeah? Oftentimes, I think the way that we describe it is all the Gospels are pointing, and here we have the climax of the story, the crucifixion, and then way down here somewhere is the resurrection. No, that's not the way Jesus talks about it, is it? They go together. They are together bringing about our salvation. So we can say something very, very simply this. If Jesus is not raised from the dead, you are not saved. Simple as that. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, you are not saved. It isn't some afterthought. It isn't some sort of nice story. It isn't even just sort of good news. Well, it's good news that Jesus didn't, you know, die, that he came back. No, this is integral to our salvation. Without the resurrection, there is no justification. Now, let's get into how this actually happens. Because Paul, as I said here, he doesn't really give us, he doesn't fill this out. He moves right into chapter five talking about what it, is, what it looks like to live in Jesus. And so we're gonna jump outside of Romans to talk about all of the different ways, or at least three ways, in which the resurrection produces for us justification. And this should just be quick, kind of a quick application. It is dangerous, it is dangerous not to read your whole Bible. 
It is dangerous to find one verse and hinge everything upon it. Church groups, denominations, cults, all of, them, all of these sort of things. Sometimes you'll find groups that they, they hinge everything on, on one verse, their whole doctrine. And yet we need the whole of Scripture because the Romans had something down. They had this down. They didn't have anything else. They didn't have, well, they didn't have anything. They had other things down that Paul needed to address. Um, but this part, this part they seem to have down. So, what does it mean to say raised for our justification. It means first the subjecting the subjecting of the powers. Now, this word powers and principalities uh, appears frequently in the Bible. And sometimes it refers to demonic powers like Satan, and sometimes it refers to governmental powers um, like governments, presidents, kings, all those kinds of things. And sometimes it refers to economic realities, economic powers, CEOs, big business, multinational corporations, well, although they wouldn't have thought of it in those terms. That would be a bit anachronistic, but you get what I mean. So let's look at it like this. What is the first conflict that Jesus had? What was the first conflict Jesus had? The first fight. Any takers? Not Satan. I tricked you successfully. Yes. Because I put the Satan thing up and you're like, well, I guess, right? No, his first conflict was with Herod, wasn't it? Herod hears there's a newborn king and what does he do? Loses his mind. He says, there's not a newborn king. I'm the king. And what do you do when somebody else says there's a newborn king? You go out and you kill all the newborns. Well, hopefully you don't do that, but that's what Herod did, right? That was, his, that was his way of isolating and cementing his power. Then Jesus enters into his first, minute, into his first battle as an adult, and that is with Satan. And Satan tempts him to do three things. The first thing is to misuse his power, to take his power and to make a rock turn it into bread. Because how powerful and popular will you be if you bring a free meal? We could pack this church every Sunday, I guarantee you, right? Beer and hot wings, places full, right? I mean, not only would they be surprised that a church would do that, but the place would be full. You, 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 you feed people and they will come. That's the principle. And Jesus says, no, no, that's not how this authority works. Then he tempts Jesus uh, to, to misuse authority by, by showing everybody how powerful he is by jumping off a building and sort of alighting down to the ground because, you know, Everyone follows Superman, and that would be really cool too. The final one's the most interesting to me, though. Satan takes him up on top of a high hill, and he shows him all of the kingdoms of the world in their splendor, and he says, I will give you these if you bow down and worship me. Now, we often misunderstand what this word worship means because I doubt any person, I doubt very few people in America, even Satanists, for crying out loud, don't worship Satan anymore. We say, well, we don't worship Satan. You misunderstand worship. Worship doesn't mean you have an idol in your house and you get down in front of it and you put your face down. It means what comes first. What is your first priority? Because we have all kinds of commitments and all kinds of priorities. You have church, you have family, and you have your job, and you have God himself, right? You have all of these different priorities. And the question is, when it comes down to it, and God says do this, and everything else, either your country, or your conscience, or your own desires, or your family, or your job, or whoever else is around you, says, well, don't do that. Which comes first? That's what you worship. Everybody worships something. And that's what Satan's doing here. He's saying, put me first. Put me first. And I will do what? 
I will give you all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, all of their money, all of their power, all their fame, which tells us two things about Satan. First, that he wants worship, that there is a desire out there that, that Satan wants us to give him uh, control of our lives. He wants to have one thing, just one thing. That's all you need, just one thing above God. And guess what? You're an idolater. Just one thing above God. That's all it takes. Children, wife, family, job, uh, hobby, whatever it is, one thing. There it is. He's just taken over. And what does he do for those who do that? He says, I give you power. It's really interesting if you read Revelation chapter 12. And Revelation chapter 12 is the best retelling of the Christmas story because it has a dragon in it. Dragons are always awesome, right? Am I right? And so there's a dragon in it, and the dragon is identified as Satan. And what is Satan trying to do? He's trying to devour the child that the woman has just bore. Christmas story. Don't laugh, it's true. It's a Christmas story. And, 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 what, and what, happens, what happens here is that Satan and Herod are one and the same. It's interesting, isn't it, that Jesus doesn't say, well, you don't own the world. You don't have power over that. You don't have control over that. You don't, you don't own the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. I can... He doesn't dispute it at all. He says, no, I'll worship God and I'll serve him only. No dispute at all. And this brings forth a biblical worldview, one that we so very rarely consider these days, one that we so rarely have, and that is there are only two kinds of children. There are children of God and there are children of the devil. You are either under the authority of God or you are under the authority of Satan. Now, that strikes us um, as not very PC, but Rick already opened the we're not PC church door, so I might as well just jump right through it. That sounds not right to us because we're like, well, we know all kinds of nice people. Well, you know, there are all kinds of nice people in America, and there are also all kinds of bad people in America, and they all have one president, don't they? This isn't saying that there aren't nice people who are underneath the power of Satan. It is to say that the Bible understands only two kinds of authority, only two kinds of power, only two lords. You are either worshiping God or you are not, and that puts you under the domain of the evil one. That puts you under his authority and his power, and, and this is a terrifying truth if you think about this because your, your, your friends, the, 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 the people that are, that are around you that, that you know and you love and you care about, it means that those people are actually literally underneath another Lord, a terrible Lord, one who has the authority and power of sin and death and that is to whom they belong and that is where they find uh, all of their place. And that's, that's a scary thought. Jesus, uh, or we see this in Hebrews. Hebrews brings this forward a little bit more for us. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, that is Jesus, likewise took part of these things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Notice what's at work in this passage here. It is to say that there are those who are free and there are those who are slaves. And Jesus came to set captives free. To free them from the power. But notice we are slaves of death. And who has the power of death? Satan. And therefore, if we are not in Jesus, we belong 
to the evil one. Ephesians 2 says we follow the prince of the power of the air. Satan himself says we belong to him. Hebrews calls us a slave of him. As the great prophet Bob Dylan once said, you've got to serve someone. And this is very true. But we don't have this mindset. We think that, well, you come to Jesus, and, and then he's your Lord, and that's fine. But everybody else running around is a free agent. They're kind of just doing their own thing. No, there are two kingdoms. And you have to choose this day which kingdom you belong to, which Lord you will serve. And by default, this is important, because by default, we choose evil. Then we read that in, Re- in Romans 1. By default, we choose evil. By default, we are underneath the kingdom and the authority of the evil one. And Jesus, through his death and resurrection, has opened up a way to subject those powers. Jesus, through the resurrection, makes it possible to deliver us from the evil one. We read this in 1 Peter chapter 3. Verses 21 and 22. And this water, so he's speaking about baptism and the way that baptism as we're buried into the watery grave and raised back up as a symbol, as remembering and reenacting in some ways even Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. What's it say here? That the water that uh, symbolizes baptism now saves you because, not because like the water is sort of like magic water or something, but because of our conscience being presented to God. It, it saves us through What? The resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has done what? Who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, with authorities, and with powers in submission to him. The resurrection liberates us from the authority, from the power of the evil one, and now allows us to belong to the kingdom of light, the kingdom of the beloved son. And this connects it specifically to justification, because that kingdom is all about sin. First, what does the resurrection do? Is, is subjecting the powers to the authority of Jesus, but it is also destroying sin. The Christians in Corinth were doubting whether Jesus had resurrected at all. They were doubting whether or not the resurrection was something they should look forward to. They were asking the question, man, it's been a long time. Seems like Jesus should have come back by now and some teachers had come in and said, hey, that resurrection stuff, I mean, that's just metaphor. It's just a good story. It's just a way of us talking about the Christ experience, of us being enlightened and having new knowledge of who God is or or a new knowledge of our own self or Christ consciousness. As you can see, if you recognize any of the things I just mentioned, those are all on Oprah's channel if you want to learn about that. Nothing new under the sun, right? Still the same lies. And Paul refutes this strongly. He says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You know what futile means? Worthless. You should be at home napping or getting ready to watch the game. This is a waste of time if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. And what else? If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, not only is your faith futile, but you are what? Still in your sins, which is kind of a a strange thing for us to say because we think, well, didn't Jesus deal with the sins on the cross? Yeah, he dealt with the sins of the cross, but he also dealt with sin in resurrection. Also dealt with sin in resurrection. Now, how does that follow? Why is there death in the world? There's death in the world because of the Garden of Eden, right? 
If you rewind all the way back to the second chapter of Genesis, so all the way back to the very beginning of your Bible, you, probably, you might have even known this story. This is probably one of the most famous stories in the Bible where God plants a garden, he puts Adam and Eve in the garden, he says, hey, you can eat of everything, everything, just leave that one alone. Just, it's like a kid with like an electric plug or a stove or something. Just don't touch the hot thing. And what's the kid do? Just sticks his hand in the fire, right? I don't believe you. It's probably not hot at all. This is what Adam and Eve do. And God says what? On the day that you eat of this, you will surely die. The punishment for sin is death. Which means then if Jesus didn't break the chains of death, the punishment for sin still lays upon us. And there is no real hope. There's no real hope at all. But that is not the way the story ended, is it? The story ends not only with Jesus being delivered up for our trespasses, but he is raised. For our justification. So that what we see in him is that death no longer has sting. Death no longer has victory. Death no longer has dominance. And sin itself has been done away with. Sin itself has been removed. Think of it like this. If we go back to this way of understanding, this biblical worldview of understanding that there are two kingdoms. There is God's kingdom. There are the people who belong to God and live according to God's way. And there are people who do not. And they are underneath the authority of the evil one. And, and so if you think of it in terms of governmental powers, you have Satan, you have uh, kings and presidents and all those other things. And you have economic powers. You have all these sort of power groups that are, are ruling. But what else do you have in a kingdom or in a nation? You have a culture, don't you? You have language, you have styles of dress, you have things that you... We had this uh, a girl in, in college, who uh, uh, Esther, who came from Africa, and the first day that she was in line, and I, I, was, I was with her, she was in line at the lunch, the lunch line, uh, she saw mashed potatoes, and she was like, what is that? And I said, it's mashed potatoes, you put gravy on, it's awesome. And she said, you give that to babies, adults don't eat that food, that's baby food. Which makes sense. I mean, you mash things up, right? And so, there's the, the, uh, that's a really stupid example. I don't know why I thought of that one. But you get the idea, right, that, that there's, there's cultural differences and there are ways of living lives. We kind of have that own, our own experience of that. You know, we have idioms up north that they don't have down south. And you don't say all y'all or you-ins or you-ins. All y- what did I forget? All y'all, you-ins. No, I think that was right. Yeah, anyway. Um, the same thing is true for the kingdom of Satan and the kingdom of God. There is a completely different way of talking, a completely different way of life, a completely different way of dressing, a completely different way of seeing ourselves in the world. One is characterized by holiness. One is characterized by sin. Sin has been broken by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ because Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. We read in 1 John 3, 8. And so what we read in Romans 6:10 is this, for death... He died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Sin has been destroyed, and that's why we hit so hard the idea, and Rick was hitting it during the communion meditation, why we hit so hard the difference between good and evil and allowing God to declare that which is good and that which is evil and not letting our own impulses or desires or what even we conceive of as being right and wrong, but allowing God to declare what is good and what is evil because if we walk in evil, we are, especially you here today who are believers, you are subjecting yourself again to slavery. Why would you do that when you have freedom and a life 
and the promise of resurrection and holiness and goodness and justice. And you are called the righteousness of God. Why would you have anything to do with that stuff? This is the way the Christian worldview, the Christian views things. Thirdly and lastly, we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In all of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I, I sort of debated about how to preach this or talk about this. All of 15 is just focused directly on the resurrection. And I'd encourage you to go home and to read uh, all of that chapter. But 1 Corinthians 15 talks about the defeating of death. Did I put it up there? I didn't. Okay. Uh, well, no, I did. Yeah, here we go. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says, for, all, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. But each in their own order. Christ the firstfruits. That is, Christ was the first to be raised. Then at his coming, all who belong to him. Then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. For he must reign until he has put his enemies under his feet in the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Is that good news? Or is that good news? Right? And not only has Jesus subjected all of the powers and principalities and authorities, it, this is why I'm a big conspiracy buff. Um, because I look at the world and say, wow, that's a hot mess. And something out there is moving and shaking. And it seems so big, doesn't it? It seems so big that you're like, I couldn't possibly touch this, or these, these machines are moving, and, and how are these machines moving? And the scripture says, well, God is moving them, and Satan has authority over them, and God is sort of using them to, to, to combat one another, to keep things at bay so that Christians can live at peace, so that Christians can declare the good news of the kingdom of God. But these, all these things will be subjected to Jesus Christ when he comes again. There will be no more rebellion in the world and there will be one king right and that all of the sin in the world will be done away with and that the last enemy to be destroyed will be death itself and this brings us a wonderful sense of peace incredible grace that god has freed us from slavery freed us from these kinds of bondages so if i can sum it all up here for you what does it mean to say that Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification? It means this. It means that he has subjected the powers to his authority. In the resurrection, he says to all of the powers of all of the world, you no longer control my people. They stand under me. I am their Lord, and I will raise them up. At the last day. Secondly, it de uh, destroys the power of sin in the Christian's life. And finally, it destroys also the power of death. We read in 1 Corinthians, death is swallowed up in victory. O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? For the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is law. But thanks be to Jesus Christ who gives us victory through our Lord. This is incredible good news. And, and again, as we've been talking through this series, the thing that we really wanted to, to hammer, the thing that we really wanted to, to drive home 
was the incredible grace that is seen in God. The incredible grace that we have as we come to know God, as we come to see how big this word salvation is. And one of the things I think we fail so often to do is to see it in its cosmic context. To see how big and awesome it is for us to be removed and freed from the power of the evil one. To be set right before God himself. To have our sins which are many, many, washed away in the blood of the Lamb, and to see death itself destroyed. This brings forward, I think, two applications for your life and two things I want to send you home with. The first is to love God. The first is to love God. To see all that God has done in just this one, just in this one verse as we consider all that God has done in every other verse that we've looked at so far, to consider how great and high and deep and wide is the love of God for you. And that if you sense that love and see that love and you love God back, that you would stay away from sin. That you would live holy, upright, godly lives. That you would see all that God has done for you in accomplishing this. And you would say, I don't ever want to subject myself to that slavery again. But I want to walk free in the power and the grace and the life that is found in Jesus Christ our Lord. What do you think? Yeah? The second is this. We have it on a few different things out here. Share Jesus. Why does it matter so much that you share Jesus? Is it because Jesus is going to say, well, you didn't share it with five people, and so I'm not letting you in the kingdom of God? No, probably not, right? Not, not, not the reason. Why? Because you love God. And because you see that even though Jesus has done all of this for you, there are other people out there who are enslaved. They're enslaved to thinking that this, is, this world is all they've got, and so they've got to make the best of it, eat, drink, because, and be merry, because tomorrow we die. They're, they're enslaved to sin. They're enslaved to the fear of death. They are enslaved, and you are free. And you, you are the blessed agents. You are the people who have been given the word that can be given to them, that can produce the faith, faith, that can bring about their freedom. And so we press hard, share Jesus, share Jesus with everyone, share Jesus by, by, by telling people about him, share Jesus by, by displaying him, share Jesus by, by any means possible that we might see many come to salvation and that God might receive more and more and more glory. In fact, we have an easy way for you to kind of do that because I know not everyone preaches weekly and so when I say share Jesus, you don't have 15 verses that come to your mind. We have these cards out there at the coffee station. It's just got a you're invited and it's got our information on it and it's got a little line there. You can write your phone number on there. You can write my phone number on there. You can write the church's phone number on there and you can hand it to anyone and say, you know, I just want to, I just want to invite you to church. Um, we just want to invite you to a place where you can learn a little bit about God. That, that's easy. Every single one of us can do that. There it is. No excuses. You have been saved to save others. You've been saved to reach out to the lost. You've been saved by the glory of God. 
because Jesus was delivered up for your trespasses and he was raised for your justification. Amen? Let's stand as we sing the song. This song is a new song to us. Um, it's, uh, it's one I kind of put on Paul. It's a heavy song. It's really thick. And so when you sing these words, I want you to think about these words. It's deep. It's meaningful. It's rich, just like the grace and power of Almighty God. Let's sing to our conqueror today.